Well, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to take those out or point your devices to the network and pull up your favorite Bible app. And I want you to find Psalm 85. And if you would stand with me as I read this to honor the authority of God's Word. Psalm 85. Lord, you've been kind to your land. You've changed Jacob's circumstances for the better. You've forgiven your people's wrongdoing. You've covered all their sins. You've stopped being furious. You've turned away from your burning anger. You, the God who can save us, restore us. Stop being angry with us. Will you be mad at us forever? Will you prolong your anger from, the one, from one generation to the next? Won't you bring us back to life again so that your people can rejoice in you? Show us your faithful love, Lord. Give us your salvation. Let me hear what the Lord God says because he speaks peace to his people and to his faithful ones. Don't let them return to foolish ways. God's salvation is very close to those who honor him so that his glory can live in our land. Faithful love and truth have met. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth springs up from the ground. Righteousness gazes down from heaven. Yes, the Lord gives what is good, and our land yields its produce. Righteousness walks before God, making a road for his steps. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. We are in the second week of our Advent series called From Humbug to Hope. And last week we, you know, we kind of noticed that there's a, there's a little bit of humbug that is out there in the world, and I would venture to say that there's a little humbug that resides in probably every one of our hearts. Uh, turmoil, um, disgruntlement, uh, hurt, whatever it might be. It might just be that, you know, our schedules are so packed this season of the year that it doesn't seem like there's room enough to breathe. We feel like we're suffocating and can't get around on everything. There's parties to prepare for and presents to buy and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And we, we look at the calendar and the clock and it's ticking and running out and we don't think it's all going to get done. But others, it's the opposite. Everybody else seems to be all sorts of busy with everything and I don't have much going on. And everybody's, you know, into this or that and maybe I feel forgotten and, and alone. So I think there's a little humbug that all of us carry in some way. But the message of 
the Christmas season, the message of Advent is that there is hope that is found in Jesus. And so our journey through Advent is from, from all of this humbug in the direction of finding Jesus this season, letting him be born again in, in our hearts. And from humbug to hope as kind of a takeoff on uh, Charles Dickens' uh, A Christmas Carol. And, we, of course, we know the, the main character in that story is Ebenezer Scrooge, kind of a grumpy old goose. Life's been difficult for him in, in many ways. And in that story, we know that he was visited by uh, three spirits, actually four if you count the ghost of his old partner, Marley. But the first spirit that comes and visits him is the ghost of Christmas past. Now, Charles Dickens describes the ghost of Christmas past as a, a childlike kind of phantom with a an older, more mature faith, and it kind of, you know, just kind of bounces around, and, you know, it's kind of a silly-looking thing. If you watch the movie's depictions of it, there's various uh, takes on, on that description, but uh, Scrooge is, you know, he's getting ready for bed, he's, he, maybe he's laying in bed, and this spirit comes and, and haunts him, and of course, he knows it's coming, but he's still, oh, taken aback, a little surprising, a uh, little frightening, I would imagine, right? <clears throat> well, this spirit says, I'm, I'm the ghost of Christmas past, and, and Scrooge says, uh, long past, and the spirit says, your past, kind of in a haunting kind of a way, like, ooh, get a little shiver. <laughs> well, then, yeah, they have this little conversation, and the, the Spirit is going to take him on a journey through points in his life that have led him and shaped him and formed him into the person who he is on that very day. And so, you know, Scrooge says, well, I'm kind of an old man, and, you know, I don't know if I can keep up, and, and, and the Spirit, you know, places his hand, touches his heart, and whew, off they go, flying. They go through the wall of the house, and, and suddenly they're, they're over the countryside where Scrooge grew up. And instantly he recognizes the place as um, being, this, this, was, this was my childhood home. This, I was a boy here, says Scrooge. And so they're kind of uh, hovering over the landscape, the country setting with the snow on the ground, and you see the various buildings, and, and they pause, and, and the spirit notices that Scrooge's lip is quivering. And he points it out, and Scrooge makes light of it, and, and then he says, well, what's, what is that on your cheek? He's got a tear coming down, rolling down the side of his cheek. He's having a nostalgic moment of when life was, in his mind, maybe better than it was on that day, of, of long ago. And 
So he has this, this moment, like, this is, this is kind of where it started, and that warmth that I feel in my heart, it, may, you know, it brings emotion to him. And then the Spirit leads him, and, and they come to the, to the boarding school where Scrooge studied. And Scrooge doesn't want to go in there because he knows what he's going to see. He knows that as they enter into the boarding school that the place is going to be dark, dim, uh, wintry feeling, empty, quiet, except for one desk is going to be occupied. And there's going to be a boy sitting at that desk alone. Uh, neglected by his friends who are out making merry of the Christmas season. Sure enough, they go into that boarding school, and, and there Ebenezer sits as, as a young boy, alone. Well, they keep going to these different episodes in Scrooge's life, and the next one that they come to, it's the same boarding school, it's several years later, and, and Ebenezer seems like he's more of a young teen, and, and this bubbly young girl comes bursting in the door, we find out her name is Fan, it's, it's Ebenezer's sister, and it's the one person in his life that brought him joy, it's the one person in his life that he could count on, that he loved, that he enjoyed being in, in, in her presence. And she comes in and she says, I'm here to take you home. Father has said that I could come and get you. He wants you to come home. He is so much kinder now. And her words suggest to us, Dickens did not have to waste words to tell us that Scrooge's father had been extremely hard on him and expected so much of him. Just kind of kept his thumb of oppression on him, to keep him down. He didn't have to use words for that. We get that just in fans' words. He's so much kinder now. And they leave that episode, and, and we learn uh, in, in the story that this one bright light in Scrooge's life is extinguished way too early, that Fan would die in childbirth when she birthed Scrooge's nephew, Fred. Well, then we go to the, this next episode, and uh, we enter into this party scene. Fezziwig, an old boss of Scrooge's. He was an apprentice there. And he remembers the place immediately, and he kind of gets a, uh, a little bounce in his step, and he, there's music, and he's kind of swaying to the music, and uh, you know, there's like a... A smile on Scrooge's, I know this place, and this is Fezziwig, and, and he just kind of fit right into what was going on, and, and, and Fezziwig was one who taught him how to, to be a business person. Fezziwig was one who, he was, he was a hard worker, expected a lot out of his employees, but he, he knew how to work hard and play hard. And so in this moment, he says, there's no more work to be done tonight. And they clear all the furniture off to the side and this, this dancing and celebration and food and everything, you know, comes, comes in. And, and Scrooge just remembers those, those good old days there. It was the 
first time, perhaps, that Scrooge came to a realization of a life of, of wealth. Like if I work hard enough, this is what money can buy. Money can buy this kind of merriment and happiness. And I think that might be one of the episodes in Scrooge's life where he started believing that lie and, and turning from, um, you know, maybe a path that was more relational with people to a path that, that was pointed towards greed and accumulation. Next episode, Scrooge and a young lady are in a room. We find out it's his fiance, Belle. And she's breaking off the engagement. I release you from your obligations. Her reasoning is that Scrooge is not the same person anymore. All of his hopes and dreams and aspirations that he had at one point in his life have all merged into one. Greed. She tells him that another idol has been placed on the throne of his life and it's a golden one. Scrooge doesn't have any argument. He simply writes it off as I'm older and I'm wiser now. And there's nothing in this world that I wouldn't do to avoid a life of poverty. He weighs everything in his life by gain. What do I get? What do I get out of it? How does this pad my pocketbook? How does this raise my honor in the social structure? They break off the engagement. All of these points along the way are adding these links to this chain that he's beginning to form and drag around with him. It looks like he's had about enough of this journey with the ghost of Christmas past, and there's one, there's one more. And they see, they peer in on this episode, and his... Ex-fiance Belle has, has found another man, and, and they are married, and this is years later, and her husband had wandered by Scrooge's shop window, peered in, saw him there all alone, counting money. And he came home and he said, I saw an old acquaintance of yours. And they had to this discussion of how lonely and isolated that Scrooge had become over the years. He wasn't the same person any longer. And, and each of these episodes have formed his character. They have turned him uh, away from people. They've, he's now bent in totally upon himself. And so he's alone and, and isolated and leads this quiet, kind of rotten existence. 
Have you ever known anybody who has just been embittered by life's circumstances? You know, you can, you can look at you can look at them and maybe you've known this person for a long time and, and maybe you've watched a change in them over the years and there's little episodes here and there and, and each one has led them um, to the place where they are now and there just seems they seem to be a bitter kind of a soul. Maybe it is that people pick on them. Maybe it's They've had some failures. Um, whatever it is, life has led them to a point. Do you know people like that? Is, that? is that your existence? Maybe not to the extent of, of Scrooge, but maybe just a little bit. There's things that have happened along your journey that have just made you a little bit crusty in certain areas. There's two uh, ways that I was thinking about that this week. Uh, I was thinking about resentment, and I was thinking about regret, and how those two things play such a critical role in how we view life these days. When I think about resentment uh, around the holiday season, you know, I can... I can picture it. I don't think that this is a, an occurrence that is isolated to a family here and there. I think we can admit that we're all real people, then that in some way, shape, or form, every one of our families has just a little dysfunction in it. It's just, it's just reality. <laughs> You know, you go to Christmas dinner, Uncle Bob says something insensitive and just belittles somebody, and pretty soon 10 years of silence go by. You're sitting around the table, you're sitting around the living room, and somebody makes an offhanded critique of the outfit you're wearing, and <clears throat> you just lock up and you get angry. Or maybe the stuffing wasn't cooked properly. Or the turkey was a little dry, or you didn't have the right background music, or the decorations didn't quite work on the front porch, or you forgot to put out the porcelain pitcher that so-and-so gave you 35 years ago. Well, where's that gift I gave you before? You know, little things like that, they, be, they, they work their way in, and, and they fester, and they, they build up resentment in our mind. And what started off as something really small, maybe even unintended, in its, in its ability to cut right in and hurt you, that might not have even been the intent, but that's how you took it. Something small can grow really large in our minds, and it occupies this big place, and, and it, you can put the label on it right now if you want. It's resentment. And in some way, shape, or form, I think every one of us has a little bit of resentment somewhere in us that we need to deal with. And the hard part of the holidays, because we think that these family events are somehow, um, you were obligated to go to all of them. They're like mandatory events on our calendar. 
I got to show up to Christmas dinner. I'm not looking forward to that. I have to see so-and-so. And you go, and everybody kind of separates to their own room, and dinner's a little bit uncomfortable and quiet. Because nobody wants to really light the fuse. It wouldn't take much, would it? So holidays are oftentimes reminders of all this turmoil that we carry around with us. Well, resentment's one thing, but then there's, there's this thing called um, regret. You know, things that we know that we did wrong. Things we can identify. You know what? I made the wrong decision. I reacted poorly. I yelled at, I spoke harshly to so-and-so out of anger in response to what they said or what they did, and maybe I crossed the line. We can identify moments like that. Maybe they're past indiscretions from decades ago that you're carrying around, but you, remember, you, you, you carry the memory with you of how you hurt somebody or how you made this mistake and you acted foolishly or you got arrested or whatever it is. There's regret from our past of things that we know that we did. And we carry this guilt and we carry this shame around with us and we think that nobody would forgive us. And, and we get to the point when that festers that we don't, even believe that God would forgive us. Why would God forgive me for something like that? But it's not just things that we did. We also carry a certain amount of regret for things that we didn't do, that we think that we should have done. I didn't help so-and-so. I, I know I... I should have spent more time with the kids. Should have been a better husband or spouse or friend or whatever it is. And so we, we carry this resentment and we carry this regret. And um, I, I remember a quote. I think, Nelson, I think Nelson Mandela said this. He said that uh, resentment is like drinking poison and hoping that it'll kill your enemies. It's only going to hurt you because you're the one that's drinking that poison. It's inside you. Resentment and regret works its way in there too. And both of these things, over time, just like Scrooge, they add a link here and there to a big, long, heavy chain, and it weighs us down. And it changes our behavior, and, and uh, it leads us into isolation, into silence. We begin to withdraw because we, we just want to avoid those kinds of things. I, I like looking for other characters in Scripture who may fit the things that we're talking about. You know, we're using Scrooge as an example here, and it's fun to pick on him because we all know the story. 
There's another character in Scripture that I think kind of is a Scrooge-like character. Different circumstances. Luke chapter 19, Luke tells us um, about an episode that Jesus has in his journey. And he is on his way uh, to Jerusalem for the Passover, and he has to come up through Jericho. And while he's in Jericho, we meet a character named Zacchaeus. You know, you know Zacchaeus? You know, in the old kid song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. You know, uh, so we, I'm assuming he was short. And I'm not going to tell you any short jokes. But I'm sure he heard all of them. And I'm sure that in his, we're not told this in Scripture, but I think there's some situations that, that we can take some license in knowing how humans act towards one another. And I think maybe on the days when Zacchaeus was a boy and around the neighborhood, out on the playground, that maybe he was picked on for his size, maybe bullied a little bit. And I think there's probably a series of episodes throughout Zacchaeus's life that led him towards isolation and, and to bitterness. And you know, when, when those things, when you drink that poison and it starts eating you from inside, what, what happens is they, those things crystallize into what we call hate. And when hate takes root, then we start acting in ways that, that we want to take revenge we want to get back at everybody who hurt us. And I think maybe there was a, a series of events through Zacchaeus' life that led him to his profession. We learned that he was a tax collector. Not just a tax collector, but one of the chief tax collectors. So he had tax collectors who worked for him. And in those days... Uh, we probably could have classified Zacchaeus as a thug. He had exacted his revenge on people in a big way. Nobody wanted to see the tax collector come knocking at their door. Because most of the time, you know, when in Scripture and Jesus would associate with sinners, quite a few places the Bible uh, tags onto Jesus associated with sinners and tax collectors. I mean, they were like notorious sinners in the society. And Zacchaeus was a chief among them. He's one of the chief sinners in the community. He had hurt, he had wronged, he had exacted his revenge on the people. Something deep down inside him started to stir when he heard that Jesus was going to be walking through his town. And remember, he's short, and the crowds were thick. It'd be like being at the tractor parade, and there's seven layers of people deep, and you're this tall, and you know, you're looking up. I can't see any lights. What do you do? You, you work your way through, you push your way to the, the front of the line, or you, or you go higher. And Zacchaeus, 
He ran out of the head of the crowd, and he found a tree, and, and he climbed the tree, and he's sitting up there in this crooked little perch, and he's looking down because he just wants to get a glimpse of Jesus. I think, I think he had had enough of his life. Totally isolated. He may have been wealthy, but it wasn't doing him any good because he wasn't finding any joy in life. He had no hope. Maybe this Jesus person could help me out. Jesus comes walking by, and he looks up, right? And he sees Zacchaeus perched there in the tree. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to have dinner at your house this very day. Wow. That was way more than what Zacchaeus had expected. Zacchaeus' life changed the moment, the moment Jesus walked into that story and called his name. Something happened in his heart when Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to dine with you. I'm I want to share hospitality. I want to be in fellowship with you. Whole world changed. All of the bondage and the prison that he felt like he was in was loosed in a moment. And he proclaims that not only does he want to be right with God, but he wants to be right with people. That's pretty tough. It's really motivating and encouraging for us that the moment that Jesus steps into our life, he can free us from all of the regret and the resentment that we might be dragging around right now. The humbug that's back here that I just want to have, maybe I've grown so comfortable with it, maybe it makes me feel comfortable to know that all that's right there. But Jesus can say, Dave, let go of that. I, I want to I be in fellowship with you right now. Whew. And that burden, he'll take it. You can leave it behind. That's the hope that we have in the Advent season of Jesus coming to earth to dwell in our presence. You know, we look at the psalm that we're, that we're in today, and it talks about how God was, was continually faithful to the people of Israel. Even though they had totally turned their back on God and started worshiping the other gods and idols in the land and started ignoring what God had to say and disobeying everything that God wanted them to do. Despite all of that, you know, they cry out from this exile place and God says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll forgive you. I'll, I'll restore you. My anger won't burn forever. Yes, God was angry. He was, he was righteously upset that the people had turned their back and broken the covenant that he had made with them. I will be your God, you will be my people. 
Here's what is required. That you do what I say. Yes, we want to do that, Lord. And we're so quick as people to turn and go, you know, selfishness works its way in and we start doing our own thing and we don't think anything of it and we think, well, you know, God will forgive me. And that breaks the heart of God when we do that. But he is, his, his relentless love and grace will always bring him back to showing us his mercy and giving it to us. That's what this psalm is, is about. In verse 8, he spoke words of peace to the people. He gently encourages them to be steadfast in following him. Don't return to your foolish ways. Verse 9 says that God's salvation is close at hand, that his glory can live in our land. Would that be a nice picture to get on your Facebook feed? God's presence is filling your land. Doesn't seem like that these days, but I believe that he wants to. The work of Advent is making room so that he can come and fill our hearts, that he can come and he can fill our land. You hear the words of Advent in this psalm. God's glory will come and will dwell amongst the people. Emmanuel, God with us. During Advent, we, we get ready to welcome Jesus into the world, and, and Jesus is the representation of God's glory among us. He personifies God's love for us. He, he brings to life the joy of the Lord. He brings with him peace and wholeness and righteousness and purity and justice. He brings with him the ability to be reconciled and restored to one another. In Jesus, we find hope for tomorrow. I love how the psalmist describes God's salvation in, in, in verse 10 and 11. Faithful love and truth have met. If they have been estranged from one another in our life, in our family, in our business, in our school, in our world, God's salvation gives us this picture that Faithful love and truth will meet again. They will come back together. If they were estranged before, they will be no longer. Righteousness and peace have kissed. If they have been separated at any point, they come back together in the picture of, of God's salvation. So we get to this, and we're in Advent, and we get to this it's hard. Advent is hard work. Can we just be honest about that? Lent is another season that, you know, gets us thinking about difficult things in our life. And it's necessary and appropriate to spend moments before the Lord doing the hard work that, that needs to be done. And so as we are clearing space in our life, so that the Christ child can be born again in us this season, well, it's hard to decide or it's hard to address some of the things that have taken root in our life and we need to move them out, right? So maybe sin that's worked into your life over the last days, weeks, months, 
Maybe it's the last couple years, addictions that we find ourselves, you know, tied to, that's occupying our mind. You know, every time we have a thought, it, you know, somehow it leads to, to this instead of leading to God. You know, those are the things that we, that we need to address. Sin that's in our life. Regret, resentment that we carry around, broken relationships, all of those things that are taking up residence in our hearts and in our souls, those are the things that we need to deal with during Advent season so that we can make room for the hope that will come and explode light and love into us. So how do we get rid of ghosts? How do we exercise the ghosts of Christmas past. Well, there's a couple things. The, f- the first thing is let go. Let go. There's, a, there's an old proverb that says, an archer hits the target partly by pulling and partly by letting go. Anybody ever shot a bow and arrow before? archers in here, a few of you, but you know, you, you have a bow and it has a string on it and you pull the string back with, with the arrow in there, right? And, and you, some bows are a little easier to pull, some you just kind of pull it back. Well, do you stay like this position forever? No. There's pulling involved and then when you want to release the arrow, you have to let go so that it shoots it. An archer hits the target partly by pulling and partly by letting go. To shoot an arrow and hit a target, you have to do two things. You have to pull back and you have to let go. And I think that the same thing goes for life. And the things that we insist on carrying around. It's appropriate to pull things, events, moments, sin, uh, whatever it is from the past, it's, it's appropriate to pull them into the present and deal with them. Learn from them. But you can't, if, if, if you've ever shot a bow and arrow that has any kind of tension on the string at all, you know that your muscles will give out at some point. You, it's not meant to be held in this position forever. You have to let go. Same thing is true of, of the things that we insist on carrying around. You can pull them into the present, deal with them, learn the lessons that need to be learned from them, and then release them. Give them back to God. Let Him come into your life and your heart and work His healing and redemption and restoration in your life. I think we hold on too long, clutching and straining and instead of releasing and too often we live in the world of, if only I had done this or if only I had responded that way, if only I had been better at this, if only I had spent more time on that, if only I had taken this job, if only I had said no to that temptation. If only, if only, if 
I had tried harder, if I had been wiser, if I had not been so angry, if I had kept my mouth shut, if I had not gone into debt, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all of those things. You fill in the blank. I want to tell you that kind of thinking is a waste of time. We can't go back and we can't change those things. We can't unsay words that we've already said. We can't undo actions that we've already done. You can't change how people have hurt you in the past. It's, those are, in, a, in economic language, that's a sunk cost. It's done. Count it. It's over. If there's lessons you need to learn, learn them and release it and move on. Now, that's real easy to say and really hard to practice. But I think that's the work of Advent. We have a season where we're waiting and we're trying to fall on our knees before the Lord and say, help us. And I trust that, that He will. At some point in your life, you're going to have to answer the question, what's more important, being right or being restored? And when you think about family situations or friendships or uh, just interpersonal conflict that we get into, two people think that they're both right, well, you're going to have to choose. Is it more important to be right, even if you are, or is it more important to preserve the relationship? Reconciliation begins when one person is willing to lay down their fight, right or wrong. Somebody's got to give. It might as well be you. The second thing comes close to letting go is to forgive. I know people have hurt all of us. People have done stuff against us, terrible things. To forgive them doesn't, is not a statement that what they did to you was okay. To forgive them is to release you from the bondage and the prison that you're in right now because you insist on carrying it around. Forgiveness isn't first and foremost for the person that you're forgiving. Forgiveness is first and foremost about setting you free. We have all in some way gone against God, and God freely forgives. Jesus walked around this earth practicing what I call preemptive forgiveness. He would forgive first. People wouldn't even ask, and he would say, your sins are forgiven. Well, that's not what I was here to talk about, Jesus, but that's what he insisted on saying. Your sins are forgiven. I will no longer hold what you did to me against you. I want to be in relationship with you, and that barrier has to come down. I can't hold on to it any longer. Forgiveness does not mean that you immediately put your full trust in the person who has wronged you. Trust is something that is earned over time. Forgiveness is what we do to let go of all of the baggage that we're carrying around. I think, though, that we like to 
practice putting people on probation instead of giving people full pardon. And what I mean by that is somewhere deep within us, when somebody hurts us, we want that person to come groveling up to us on their hands and knees and beg us for forgiveness. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? What I did was so wrong. We want to hear that. And then we might be willing to forgive them. But oftentimes, we might say, yeah, I forgive you. But in our mind, you know, I got to watch this person close. You know, I don't, I can't trust that person and they're going to hurt me again. And so I'm going to say I forgive them, but I'm going to watch and see. And we put them on probation instead of releasing the whole load and giving it to God and speaking those words of, you know, you really, really hurt me, but I forgive you. I can't carry that around anymore. I value being restored or reconciled in some way. So let go, forgive, and the third thing is an active thing that, that we can do that I think the psalmist encourages of all of us um, is to practice a Jesus life. Salvation isn't just believing in Jesus, but uh, salvation is embodying what Jesus embodied in this world. And so the things that the psalmist listed as the characteristics of God, faithful love and truth and righteousness and peace, those are all things that we need to begin practicing in our life things that were totally vacant, void in Ebenezer Scrooge's life. Zacchaeus did not walk around as a person of faithful love and truth and righteousness and peace. Probably the opposite landed him where he was. But in both of those stories, after the spirits had visited Scrooge multiple times and after Jesus stepped into Zacchaeus's life and said, Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree... They began to practice the characteristics of God in their life. And they began to take steps in their own existence and how they treated people to, to live a life that, had, that was characterized by faithful love, and truth, and righteousness, justice, peace, all of those things. Just imagine what it could look like if righteousness and peace would join together in your family? What would it look like if those two things came together in your workplace, in your church? If, what if those things look like if they came together in our nation? Advent is a time of waiting and expectation. And the psalm reminds us of, of what we're waiting for. It gives us a picture of what God's future will look like. So don't put off till tomorrow what you could take care of today. If there's a healing word that needs to be said, say it. If there's a word of forgiveness that needs to be granted, Speak it. If there's something that you need to quit, quit it. If you need help with any of that, 
and I would dare say most of us probably do, ask for it. There are people here who love you, who want to take those steps with you as hard as they might be to support you and to encourage you and to comfort you. Even if you think it's too late, it's not too late. As long as you have breath in your lungs, you have time to exercise these ghosts of Christmas past. And you can begin to break this cycle of negativity and hurt in your family. Be God's agent of peace in your world. We live in a world that desperately needs to see what God's peace looks like. Let's leave this place as agents of his peace wherever we find ourselves going. May faithful love and truth meet, and may righteousness and peace kiss in and through your life. People of God said, amen.